Welcome to the Climate Pelicans Brief, a podcast bridging the gap between climate science and Louisiana frontline communities. I'm Corinne Salter. And I'm Jill Tapitza. Join us as we disentangle environmental justice issues facing Louisiana using peer-reviewed science as well as the voices and lived experiences of community leaders. Our goals are to uplift activist platforms and raise awareness about the many environmental puzzles in Louisiana. While contextualizing everything through the lens of climate crisis mitigation. Content warning. This episode contains discussion of heavy topics surrounding treatment of prisoners and youth in the criminal justice system. It may not be suitable for some audiences. Hi there. Welcome back to another episode of Climate Pelicans Brief. So toward the beginning of this series, we discussed how environmental injustice impacts marginalized communities. We mentioned how we'd be tying environmental justice issues into many different topics throughout our podcast because a lot of Climate Pelicans' mission hinges on environmental justice. Environmental justice being the fair and meaningful involvement of all people despite identity with respect to the development, implementation, and enforcement of environmental law laws, regulations, and policies. So under the 5th and 14th Amendments of the Constitution, all citizens have a right to a clean and healthy environment. Well, let's take this discussion one step further. Humor us by considering to yourself, why might our current carceral systems um, have environmental justice implications? For instance, consider the inhumane conditions that prisoners are held in, in during imprisonment. Do you believe that prisoners should have the same rights as the general population to a clean and healthy environment? Consider recent discussion over over policing and sentencing of black communities throughout the U.S. since the 2020 Black Lives Matter protests following the murder of George Floyd. We understand that marginalized people, especially black people, are disproportionately targeted by the criminal justice system. But what what does this disproportionate black justice and involved population mean for environmental justice implications. Today we're talking about a very interesting topic that's very new to the environmental justice literature landscape, and that is the criminal justice, environmental justice overlap. So buckle up because we hope to engage you in a discussion that's very nuanced and illuminating about the ways in which systems of oppression, especially in highly racialized states like Louisiana, maintain themselves. Let's dive right in. So we kind of mentioned um, our backgrounds in the first episode of Climate Pelicans Brief, but as a reminder, my undergraduate degree is actually in criminal justice. In my time as an undergrad, I researched prison populations and the injustices behind carceral punishment, the unfair treatment of black, brown, and low-income populations in our criminal justice system, and prison conditions for already marginalized people under the prison industrial complex. Additionally, I researched how those conditions worsened under previous Governor Bobby Jindal's push towards neoliberalism and privatization of public institutions, such as our prison system. With this privatization, imprisonment becomes an industry to be profited off of, where where the more bodies filling prison beds spells profit for the prison Uh, for the private prison operators. Thus, laws and punishment are wielded against typically already marginalized peoples to increase prison populations and subsequent profit. And basically, the ways in which prisons are profitable is that prisons produce intense labor regimes that are only required to pay the prison workforce pennies on the dollar while producing goods and services to the general public. The prison workforce earns billions of dollars for private industry 
all with little to no losses due to their very egregiously small wages that prisoners make from their huge labor output. Generally speaking, the prison industry is very lucrative and preys upon already marginalized and largely voiceless people to power it. Take, for instance, the many instances of people being sentenced to life in prison with no possibility of parole for theft. In California, there is a three strikes law where justice involved individuals can be sentenced for life uh, to life for being convicted of two or more violent or serious offenses prior. Under this law, there is little alternative once the threshold has been met besides a life sentence. These types of laws create optimal conditions for perpetuating and maintaining prison populations without many pathways to rehabilitation and return to society. And the sustainability permitted behind laws like the three strikes law meant to maintain prison populations is evidenced in the fact that U.S. alone accounts for 25% of the total global prison population, despite um, being the only country making up 5% of the global population. Yeah, I think that's really telling um, to see that. I mean, it's obviously, I don't think that we would just imprison a bunch of people just for the sake of it. You know, like, obviously, if we're imprisoning, if we're imprisoning 25% of like the global total prison population, in they're they're in they're accounted for in the US. I don't know. I feel like that's kind of like indicative of like how truly lucrative and like meaningful this industry really is. You know, that's a wild statistic. That's so disproportionate to the US. It was wild. Um, And so, yeah, with this huge prison labor force, there are not the same requirements for base pay and protections that general population employees doing similar labor would receive. So to add to this, according to the ACLU, um, nationally incarcerated workers produce more than $2 billion per year in goods and more than $9 billion per year was produced in in services for the maintenance of prisons, which offsets the burgeoning costs to maintain a prison due to the need to increase prison population sizes so it's basically like a positive feedback loop where to maintain a large prison you have to have a large prison population and with that large prison population comes a lot of maintenance which needs to be managed by prison labor so it just Ooh, you know, exhausting. <laughs> I know it's, it's around just an endless that. cycle goodness i'm like getting anxious um, <laughs> and as we know from recent discourses regarding the inequity in punishment in our criminal justice system, the prison population is disproportionately black. Reigning racially motivated reasoning behind this points to the idea that black people are inherently more criminal, a theory that we know is wholly untrue and absolutely unjustifiable, especially given the history of how the criminal justice system has been operationalized against black people following emancipation of slaves in 1863 to deny black people the rights they were supposed to be afforded as newly freed men. Um, This disproportionately representative prison population and the ways in which the criminal justice system has been used against black people and their freedoms, in turn generating a lucrative prison industry with little to no reciprocity or protections for the prisoners, has um, has led many to consider imprisonment to be a new form of slavery. That is heavy. I know, very impactful. And I mean, if you really think about it, like it, it's so similar to you know our previous roots in slavery and it's just i mean it's a very lucrative industry and it's basically like trying to deny black people rights and that's originally like you know where a lot of the laws came from whenever you know whenever black people were freed um you know like jim crow era laws they basically were meant to 
prevent black people from having any rights that they were supposed to be afforded at all. So you just can see like, you know, the roots of like just racism in the criminal justice system. And Absolutely. And this is much bigger in the deep South. Oh, is yeah. that true? Yeah. I would, I would definitely say so. I mean, you know, my experience outside of the South is not a lot, but um, especially just like you know, reading about it or like visiting other places, like the landscapes, even just like they're visibly different, Mm -hmm. you know, just being in the South versus being anywhere else. Yeah. So um, black men are more like more likely than white men or women to receive jail sentences over probation due to judicial discrimination that finds young black men to be more dangerous and blameworthy than their white counterparts. And essentially it is similar to slavery, right? Because a disproportionate amount of black people and marginalized people are being over policed, over sentenced and placed in a prison economy where they are stripped of their rights and protections. And with laws like the three strikes law, there is almost no alternative to life imprisonment where prisoners never see freedom from these conditions and in these carceral facilities we see a host of environmental injustices so it gets worse yeah it's it's only made worse by environmental injustice wow so we've discussed how the prison industry is very profitable Mm -hmm. and how it basically pays to have more people incarcerated but now to the bigger question what does this have to do with environmental justice Yeah, so um, let's start maybe foundationally speaking with the fact that prisons are considered locally unwanted land uses, or LULUs. And if you go back to listen to our EJ episode, you'll hear how LULUs are largely unwanted and NIMBYism, which is not in my backyard, um, basically pushes these LULUs out to host communities that do not have equal say and representation to keep those LULUs out of their own neighborhoods. Right, because like NIMBYism, not in my backyard, people will try to push out anything that they can um, from operating in their own communities. Um, And that's, that's absolutely right. So while prisons are Lulu's um, they are environmentally toxic land uses like waste treatment and landfill sites. So also not something you want Mm -hmm. right next to you. Those are all Lulu's. Nobody wants that. Um, This creates an interesting environmental justice implication because this essentially means that made possible by NIMBYism, Lulu's go into those already marginalized communities and often go to the same places. So the thread of thinking is that if these are locally unwanted, there are a few places they can go without much pushback from the community. Mm -hmm. Um, For mostly they go to marginalized communities that cannot speak up against these Lulu sightings. But on top of this, the prisons get placed on land that is unwanted Mm -hmm. because prisoners are locally undesirable the land that they usually occupy is typically undesirable land itself as well in fact a lot of prisons are often placed on or near toxic sites one study found that at least 589 federal and state prisons are located within three miles of a superfund cleanup site on the national priorities list with 134 of those prisons located within just one mile yeah that's that's crazy i know that's not a small amount um this poses a host of problems for prison communities much of which is disproportionately black and coupled with environmental racism and racism operationalized through the criminal justice system many of these prison community members could perpetually face environmental injustices both in prison and general populations yeah so like the idea is that you know if environmental racism is as salient as like we found it to be in ej literature basically if these are the same communities that are being over policed and over sentenced which you know environmental racism is 
is based upon race. And so is like a lot of the U.S. criminal justice system's sentencing and policing patterns with those two things kind of being along the same spectrum, then that also means that those same communities are going just from one environmental justice community in their general population whenever they're, you know, out in the, like they're like out free. in the general population. Yeah, exactly. And then um, whenever they're imprisoned, if they are to be imprisoned because they're facing so much over-policing and over-sentencing, then they're also entering another environmental injustice community because, you know, like we said, a lot of these um, facility, a lot of these carceral facilities are located near or on Superfund sites in some capacity, or just in some environmentally degraded areas. So, yeah, and for those of us who don't know what Superfund sites right, are, right, right. Yes. Um, do you want to define that? Really yeah. Quick? So basically, the EPA has a program set up, which is considered the Superfund program, and it basically is um, it takes sites that are so. Um, environmentally toxic that they basically have to have federal intervention to be cleaned up. So whenever the Superfund site, whenever a site gets designated as a Superfund site, then whatever um, company basically had had caused that pollution has to settle, has to basically pay money to the federal government, and then that goes into a into a large fund which is used to remediate these sites. So, okay. so highly toxic. Oh yes. Yeah. So highly if toxic. the if the EPA literally has to come in and say, hey, you need to clean this up you know it's gotten bad like you Oof. know <laughs> yeah when the epa responded to like our complaint over that oil spill the mm-hmm. other day they were basically they sent me a follow-up email and this was like huge oil all over the place in a bay and so like they they were called you know we did an official complaint and they were basically like they didn't really get involved so really? i guess they didn't consider it worth their time or something See, but yeah yeah they're basically like um thank you for your complaint we've turned this over to the department of Ar- environmental quality which we all know mishandles a lot of these things um due to other stuff um and they were just like feel free to not reach out to me with questions that's so funny (laughs) because yeah see that does show you like because even something as serious like that's not saying that that's not diminishing at all right what was going on but like you saw imagine how much worse it is on these land sites that are super fun for them to actually prisons are placed upon so yeah just paint y'all a picture (laughs) exactly yeah so it takes a lot for the federal government to get involved in that way in that capacity a lot of times with um in environmental planning policy and management a lot of of the responsibilities, even though we have like federally designated, um, you know, we have amendments, we have acts that basically say this is what the and these are the environmental standards that everybody should have a right to. Um, at the end of the day, a lot of that trickles down to the responsibility of each individual state to uphold that, and the the state itself has to uphold that. Now, unless there's this just like grossly obvious. Um, like failure of enforcement or failure of regulation by on behalf of the state, a lot of times the federal government is not going to intervene in that way. Like it has to be something that's so like massively blown up and something that they just like take notice of that they that they literally just can't turn their eyes away from. Like that's the only way that really the federal government like intervenes in that way. Otherwise, it is entirely left up and uh, left up to the state. And that's why a lot of states don't even really have environmental protection plans because they just literally do exactly the bare minimum of what they're required to do by the federal government which you know yeah isn't always enough yeah is usually not enough <laughs> so in conclusion the super fun sites are nationally designated yes. which means that they are the grossest places yes. on earth and who lives in the grossest places Terrible. on earth 
prisons and yeah prisoners. unfortunately yeah that's that because like we said a lot of those um a lot of prisons people don't want prisons in their communities and so whenever they ha- whenever they have to set up a prison somewhere they try to set it up in a place that is unwanted generally speaking so that they don't get that pushback and unfortunately for the prisoners um a lot of times the unwanted land is not environmentally safe land which you know you can imagine that um, and yeah, thinking about that too, in terms of climate change, um, the increased frequency and severity of natural disasters, um, with all that, we have to consider how the prison system is, or rather is not, equipped to respond. Um, for instance, when Hurricanes Harvey and Irma struck the South, prisons and zones vulnerable to flooding were directly in their path. Thousands of prisoners in Texas and Florida, which together house more than a quarter of a million inmates, approximately 16% of the U.S.'s prison population had to be evacuated to more secure facilities. But for some prisons, they do not have the capacity or the staff to properly evacuate and protect their inmate populations from these natural disasters. Mm. For instance, the FCI Beaumont, 1,812 prisoners were left stranded with inadequate food and water after Hurricane Harvey. These conditions are typical for inmates during natural disasters. Many prisoners described how they feel They are a group of least concerned during a crisis and left to perish under perilous conditions, worsened more so by the lack of protective response to natural disasters. In Orleans Parish, during and after Hurricane Katrina, prisoners were left in abhorrent conditions with little food, um, little to no food or water. Yeah. And so like the fact of the matter, it's, it's inhumane. It's, it's pretty sad too. And I mean, I understand a lot of people whenever I was doing my undergrad, it was, it was often hard to explain to people why I was researching prison populations. Well, firstly, because a lot of the information that you get from prison populations is like very, um, what's the word, very protected um, for many reasons, you know, for like prison, uh, prison on prison, prisoner on prisoner violence, you know, like retaliation for speaking to, um, for speaking to study researchers. um, And then also just like, Um, The fact that a lot of times prisoners are seen as like these people that just don't deserve rights, you know, they basically a lot of people see them as having like given up their rights whenever they committed a crime. But if we really start to think about it in terms of like racial injustice and like marginalization of people through the criminal justice system and disenfranchisement, a lot of times people are... It's almost as if like we have a system that is created to fail them, you know? Right. And so as much as like I do believe that um, people should receive, I guess, justice in whatever way they feel is right to them, at the same time, um, it's it's hard to imagine that type of justice coming from just imprisonment, um, just knowing like the terrible conditions that these people are in. And then especially as well, thinking about like um, the conditions that they were in that got them there in the first place right I like to think of it like when considering how like prisoners are treated I think about the least guilty person there the person who's there because they you know were at the wrong place at the wrong time and were convicted of something they didn't do or like you know the 17 year old kid who like shoplifted Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and now they're what left to starve in a hurricane like that's not justice at all yeah it's hard it's really horrible to think about too especially because like you know i mentioned in um in one of the parts uh earlier we had talked about how um 
people had been sentenced to life in prison for theft, you know? Um, there are so many stories of that type of thing happening because a lot of the people that are in prison systems that are sentenced to life sentences like that, um, they don't have adequate representation. They don't have the resources. They don't have a family advocating for them on the outside. So they basically have nobody in their corner. So if you're like, if you're a person that's just pretty much invisible to the rest of the world, then like nobody's going to notice whenever you're spending a lifelong prison sentence, you know? Right. Yeah. And it's just really sad. And we have to think about like all the vagrancy laws that they have as well. You know, like even in places like Baton Rouge, they tried to like increase, you know, the, um, the vagrancy laws so that they wouldn't be seeing as many homeless people around, you know? And it's just, it's honestly just like, it's really shameful because if we didn't have such a poor public infrastructure, if we didn't bringing it back to oil and gas industry, if we didn't give them so many tax cuts. We always do. (laughs) If we didn't give them so many tax cuts and so many tax breaks, then maybe, you know, we would have enough money that would go into the public infrastructure that that could support shelters and, you know, um, soup kitchens, nonprofits, things like that, you know? Absolutely. Like, Absolutely. And if maybe 10% of the Baton Rouge city budget didn't go to the police, sorry, right. we're just, we're popping off here. We're, oh, woo, oh, we're, doing we're doing it. We're doing we're it. We're under the moonlight. Yeah. <laughs> That's so funny. I mean, the sun is going down a lot earlier. You're right. Yeah. It is, it is a dusk evening on a cloudy fall day. Very cozy. Very Cups fall. of tea in my living room. We're sitting on the floor. Stella's over there being cozy and cute to set the scene. So and we are popping off about anything and everything (laughs) that's what we do um (laughs) um but yeah so uh yeah we just those are just a lot of things that we have to think about so the fact of the matter is bringing it back to natural disasters um with all of this entire communities and states basically scramble for survival and and resilience in the face of natural disasters however prison populations being some of the most stigmatized underrepresented and underserved will face the worst of these the worst of these disasters and with natural disasters ever growing likelihood and intensities the need for a disaster response for these communities will become increasingly more necessary and if these communities needs continue to be neglected the toll that they will bear will only grow larger and the human rights violations will worsen will worsen and look at the recent heat waves this past summer and the droughts we faced not only was this so dangerous for inmates throughout louisiana but look at the juvenile population in angola Angola. prison since october 2022 70 to 80 children almost all black boys have been housed in the former death row of angola where they were subjected to abusive conditions including solitary confinement for days sometimes weeks at a time excessive force and the routine use of handcuffs restraints and chemical agents so sad right um and with the severe heat the youth at angola alleged that they were being held in a building with no air conditioning and scarce drinking water where the heat index air temperature and humidity combined that's the heat index Mm -hmm. soared to 132 degrees and some children resorted to sleeping in the coolest part of their cells the concrete floors absolutely abhorrent and you know that concrete floor was not that cool to begin with that was probably like a sleeping on a cookie sheet right exactly um thankfully after much deserved public scrutiny the youth inmates were moved from angola this still poses severe ej implications for the inmates left no matter what age but more obviously are but obviously more complicated by the fact that they were juveniles yeah it's just like it's so sick to think about that and like you know 
I, whenever I was doing a lot of my studying for uh, criminal justice, um, a lot of it was also looking at juvenile prison populations as well and kind of looking at what led them down that path in the first place. And a lot of times it's adverse childhood experiences, which are basically like negative childhood experiences, which could be abuse, you know, um, like sexual or violent, just um, any type of abuse, um, you know, just very like adverse conditions at childhood that would basically make you um, more likely to kind of travel, kind of go down a path of like, you know, breaking a law not necessarily like a path of crime but it's like we have to think about the fact that like laws are subjective you know like what's illegal in one country won't be in another you know so it's like Mm -hmm. it's all socially constructed so you kind of have to think about the fact that like for instance like young girls who are maybe like sexually abused as children um they might have they might have more of a likelihood to end up in like some sort of like prostitution or something like that and that's considered a crime even though they would be young children and that would technically be abuse on behalf of whoever is like soliciting their services but it's like the fact that it's like viewed from this lens of this child is a criminal viewing a child as a criminal i'm sorry is just like so strange to me right like it's just such a weird idea because it's like children respond under the conditions that they are put under you know what i mean they're not just like being formed into these little evil like demons you know out of nowhere like they they this is coming from some sort of probably a system of abuse that they grew up in and so it's almost like this idea that we're criminalizing victims you know we're turning victims into criminals and it's like not only doing that but then putting juvenile literally juvenile people in a prison system in an adult prison system in angola which is like one of the worst like one of the worst prisons to be in like and then subjecting them to this severe heat and these terrible conditions already on top of like you know their their conditions that they're in just being imprisoned in the first place is just like it's just wild it's mind-blowing to me and it's like really unfortunate too because i mean if we can't even have like empathy for children at that point like what are we doing you know right exactly this is like i feel like this issue is just like the train wreck of so many other issues always like the worst of the worst things that happen in louisiana they yeah. all meet in this episode <laughs> i know i know right <laughs> It's like it sounds like awful. the environmental concerns, mm-hmm. you know, child abuse, yes. um, the prison system. And I'm sorry, this is like a really profit, heavy episode. Yeah, we're gonna have to put a disclaimer on this one or something. But My. um, we'll just uh, we'll just keep moving along. But it's the reality. It's the rea- it, well, This is the world we live in, and it we is. can do things to change it. We can. So yeah, we'll get there. Obviously, like something was done about it. You know, the children were moved out of Angola. Thank God. But you know, it took way too long. O- October 2022. That's been almost a whole year at that point at the point that this article Mm. was published but yeah that's a that's way too long to be keeping children in those conditions like that's it's just it's wild um but also i want to mention the prison labor force uh which often serves as a as first responders to growing natural disasters so for instance on the west coast many states are dealing with increasing and more severe wildfires uh without the proper capacity of first responder workforce to fight these fires states like california have opted into programs such as their inmate firefighter program in california inmate labor comprises about one-third of their firefighting force and they only earn between $2.90 to $5 a day, uh, depending on their duties, and slightly more whenever they are actively fighting a fire. That goes to show you like how much their lives are valued at, since right. that is such a dangerous thing to be doing, yeah, exactly. volunteering for. Um, 
Fighting such deadly raging fires with only two weeks of training can pose serious health issues in that line of work. Not knocking that these programs aren't meaningful to inmates involved, but knowing what we know about the prison industry intentionally using um, or intentionally being used to keep people um, perpetually in prison, there are a lot of justice implications that come along with such an issue. For instance, while joining the program is the choice of the inmate in other oppressive conditions and without many options, there is not much room for freedom of choice in that kind of situation. In the program, inmate firefighters are four times more likely to be injured by objects than their professional counterparts um, and eight times more likely to suffer injuries related to smoke inhalation. Yeah, so this kind of begs the question of whether or not the inmate firefighters' lives and safety are being are as protected as they should be. Do their lives matter less because they are inmates, therefore do they do not deserve the same workplace protections? They are first responders just as much as professionals, and they are expected to risk their lives to protect the greater good of the public just as much, but yet they are suffering inequitably because of their prisoner status. This line of work without necessary training, tools, and protections can have lifelong health repercussions for the inmate firefighters. An article found that 1,000 inmate firefighters required hospital care during the preceding five-year period after serving in the program. 1,000? Yeah. Wow. And with how intense and frequent natural disasters like wildfires are becoming, the need for more low-wage firefighters to respond to these growing disasters will grow alongside this, creating more EJ implications, that's environmental justice Mm -hmm. um, slang, (laughs) for inmates involved in the first responder programs like this. Yeah. And, you know, that's related to natural disasters. You know, um, obviously, like we could talk all day and night about all the different um, natural disasters that happen all over the U.S. and how they impact different prison populations um, differently in different ways, you know, across across state state borders. But um, bringing it back a little bit to the ways in which the criminal justice system has operationalized racism, um, having established that black communities are disproportionately represented through over-policing and unjust sentencing outcomes after imprisonment, these communities lose the right to vote um, and some of their First Amendment rights. Talk about a system really being stacked against you. Yeah, and if you think about it, black people firstly faced a violent history of voter suppression. First, it was through violent means whereby black people were quite literally threatened out of exercising their right to vote when they were finally given the freedom to do so. Another way black people have um, had their votes suppressed is through the criminal justice system. We mentioned that the criminal justice system is overtly hyper-policing black people in their communities, making them more likely to become justice involved, but then add how after involved in the justice system, you lose your right to vote. Yeah. Um, this poses serious, that's a really bad feedback mm-hmm. loop. That's mm-hmm. that's not good democracy. No. That's not a democracy. Right. This poses serious concerns for the environmental justice ideology. If people are to have fair treatment and meaningful involvement in, vi- in environmental outcomes and impacts, an entire group, which is often comprised of marginalized, either socioeconomically or racially um, racial people, um, that has been justice involved no longer has access to contributing to these outcomes. 
So that's kind of a nasty feedback loop. No, it really is. Because, like, you know, um, I mean, how are they supposed to have this equitable involvement whenever a lot of, like we were saying, like, you know, a lot of black populations across the U.S. are being overly policed and over-sentenced. How are they supposed to have this, like, equity and say if they are quite literally being so hyper-policed that, like, they might end up being more justice involved. And then whenever they are, they lose their right to vote. Like, they literally lose their their biggest uh resource to democracy you know right like that's just you're stuck in a corner at that point you can't you can't be then it's just like you're labeled as part of the solution and you can never or you're labeled as part of the problem and you're never able to redeem yourself and become part of the solution exactly that's what i think about all the time and you know um i used to work uh i used to work for the state and the uh louisiana state police and actually whenever i was working for like the government over there um i was working in one of their buildings on like the state police compound and they had um prison laborers they had people that were from angola that were technically living in um the barracks so they were living in like I don't even know what they were like, but just basically separate from the uh, from Angola so that they could work um, on the compound. And they were some of the nicest people that I've ever met in my entire life. Like, honestly, they were so kind. And I feel like that's like what what really challenged me to think outside of like carceral systems and think outside of like what the U.S. has perpetuated as like the only way to Mm -hmm. to receive justice is like through this like in so just like. just this awful um abusive exploitative prison system that we have like i really had to step outside of that because i would get to know about them they would tell me about their families they would they would show me pictures of their kids and it was just like so sweet you know to hear just to hear like somebody talk to you just like i don't know it just felt like they were just leveling with me like it just felt like a real authentic conversation and like then i would just talk to some of the other people that were like just regular people like you know general population people that were um just employees over there and they were cool but they just like i don't know it just felt like there was just such a big disconnect because i felt like there was just such a like i just felt like the prisoners were just so just so humble and like so willing to like meet you where you are and like you know just I don't know. They, it just seemed like they just seemed very authentic. And I don't even really know like how to describe it, but it just felt like if I could like if I could find if I could find empathy for people like for them and then, you know, see myself in them and they could see themselves in me, then like maybe I can see myself in everyone and then maybe everyone deserves that level of empathy. You know what I mean? That's beautiful. I don't know. It's no, that's beautiful. <laughs> I love that. You're going to bring me to tears. Dude. Um, <laughs> thank well, you for sharing that experience. Yeah. Honestly, like I think about them all the time because I'm like after COVID, I don't know what happened with that because, you know, everybody went, um, everybody went remote after that. And so mm-hmm. I hope that because a lot of them were like planning on getting released within the next year or so and so I don't know what their release looked like after that you know um one of them uh I remember he was telling me that he was supposed to be getting out the next year and then the next year was whenever COVID hit so I don't know I really hope that he was able to get out because he had a lot of great plans and like you know he had he had grandchildren that he wanted to meet you know and I just I don't know I think about them all the time yeah I mean the prison system should be used to like you know, you do your time and then you get back to your life. Yeah. Or just like but, restore, like restore right. communities, restore relationships. I mean, I know that like, you know, that might just be like a pie in the sky pipe dream, but, um, you know, they do have such thing as like, you know, 
justice between people where you actually do restore the you restore the victim you restore the relationship you restore the community that you harmed through that crime and i wish that we did have more restorative justice alternatives but here we are so not in this country (laughs) here we are here we are talking about it though yeah we're talking about it so that's what matters so hopefully this is like you know not falling on deaf ears or at least maybe you know this gave you all some food for thought um as far as like what it looks like for environmental justice in prison communities and maybe it made you think a little bit outside of the box for this one but um yeah anyways A lot of that that we talked about today really doesn't sound like fair and meaningful involvement to me, which is what environmental justice itself is reliant upon, is that fair and meaningful involvement. Um, At the surface level, some people may think to themselves, prisoners ceded their rights as citizens when they decided to commit their crimes that got them imprisoned in the first place. But if you think about the racialized history of the criminal justice system, specifically against black people, you can't ignore the fact that our justice system is extremely corrupt and exploitative. And it reifies itself through further exploitation and disenfranchisement of marginalized people. That That disenfranchisement also drives environmental injustice, where prisons themselves can be sites of severe environmental hazards and prison labor systems are burdened with increased environmental danger through increasing natural disaster thanks to climate change. And if released into the general population, prisoners can never expect to have the same access to rights and resources that they may have had prior to imprisonment. Thus, the system reifies itself, making them less able to contribute to environmental decision making and making them more vulnerable to re-enter the environmental unjust prison system. Boom. <laughs> Boom. Uh, boom. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. That was a that was, that a, was a heavy one. That was a packed episode. Yeah. I like have to like take some time to sort out my feelings yeah no i get it yeah that's it's super thoughtful i feel like this is one of those things where it's like you stretch your empathy muscles yeah empathy is a muscle it really stretch it you've got to work it out so yeah because like that's always like what my what i've always been really driven by is like thinking about thinking about things from the perspective from the perspective of like the most marginalized voice because often like the mo- most marginalized are the most stigmatized they're the most demonized but they're usually the ones that are suffering the most under those stigmas and under those demonizations so i mean there's a reason why certain populations are so heavily stigmatized and it's to keep these systems of exploitation and i'm hoping that like by having these conversations where we are able to like stretch out our empathy and you know like really flex that empathy muscle um then maybe we can start envisioning a future where we just don't have to you know exploit people in that way and maybe we can see ourselves in them too yeah i would love to start stripping away that idea that i feel like it's instilled in all americans where like prisoners are like these are murderers these are bad people and like yeah there are some of course they're there but that's not your average prisoner especially in the deep south there's so many other considerations that's just really is a simplistic way to look at that and it's just not true yeah it's it's unrepresentative of like the deeply deeply racialized history that we have and the ways in which the criminal justice system has been utilized against marginalized people. So like if we ignore that, then we ignore like a whole facet of what makes up the contemporary prison systems. And we, we just can't do that anymore. You said it. <laughs> you said it. Um, so we'll get into the cost to action. 
So for this week's episode, we want to start by thanking Go Planet for organizing and Rye St. James in the LSU community for supporting our recent climate rally. Yay. It was a great success, and the quality of turnout this year was incredible. It was. Um, you can go read the article on our rally by the Reveille, the LSU student newspaper, which we will link in the show notes. Another action item is to make sure that you are registered to vote for this upcoming presidential election. It is very important, especially within justice realms of all kinds. Uh, all kinds, environmental, climate, and social to engage civically and exercise your right to vote. Let's keep in mind that so many justice-involved people throughout the U.S. are not allowed the right to vote, further endangering them to inhumane and unfair conditions that they will never be able to democratically relieve themselves of. So it's important that you exercise your right to speak up for these folks who have been denied the right to vote for themselves. So use your voice, Louisiana, and go vote. Go vote. Thank you. Thanks.